If you have a Bible this morning, you should have one in the front of your, front of your pew. I'm excited about this message, and it's going to be a bit of a long one, and I'm sorry, but we only do this once a week, so come on. It's cool, right? There's just so much good stuff here. I'm excited about this, about this message because this, this story is fascinating to me. Um, my, my parents had a, a cassette tape of all these different Bible stories that were animated when I was growing up as a kid. And I remember watching this story as a five or six-year-old and being fascinated with it and being terrified of it. It really, it really kept me up at night wondering, what is this about? It's so creepy, but it's really cool. And what does it mean? And so Josh asked me to preach today, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to bust that out. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Uh, If you are pulling one of the Bibles out from the pew in front of you, it's on page 742. I don't don't preach out of the... uh, I don't preach out of the Old Testament very often, so this is, this is exciting. This is a great story. The writing on the wall, Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read through most of the chapter. Um, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, but I'm going to skim over certain parts of it that uh, we're not going to get to in any detail this morning. So read along with me, if you will. Before I begin, is my microphone being obnoxious? Are we okay? Okay. Because I'll knock them out. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and the lords and his wives and concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that they had taken from the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, who was ever able to read the inscription and make known its interpretation, I will give a chain of gold around his neck, and he'll be the third ruler in the kingdom, and he shall be clothed with purple. And the king's men came in, but they could not read the writing. And King Belshazzar was troubled and alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And then verses 10 through 16, the queen comes in. And she reminds Belshazzar of a little bit of history. And she says to him, remember that guy Daniel, whenever Nebuchadnezzar had taken, so King Nebuchadnezzar was, was ruling whenever Babylon went in and took out the southern kingdom and put, took all of the Israelites into captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar was in charge then. And they, he took with him this young, very bright boy named Daniel, who this book is named after, and Daniel had the gift of interpreting dreams, and he interpreted a couple of dreams for Nebuchadnezzar over the years, and, and he always had the rough business of giving Nebuchadnezzar some pretty bad news, but nonetheless, his interpretation of the dreams were accurate, and so the queen comes in. This is probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife. We read in, in verse 2 that the gold and the silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. That word father can mean biological father. Or it can mean grandfather. It can even just mean predecessor, someone who came before us. Or just a general term for ancestor. All over the New Testament you see the Israelites saying, our father Abraham. Not not literally a biological father, but a long-removed ancestor. 
So Nebuchadnezzar was not Belshazzar's physical, biological father, but he was, a, he was his grandfather. And so this queen, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, comes in and says, remember Daniel. Remember him. He's still around. Why don't we bring him in? And so Daniel is brought in, and, and Belshazzar makes him the same deal. He's like, I've heard of you. You're that, you're that, that guy that came up here that my, brother, that my father brought out of Judea, and I've heard some good things about your brain. So if you, can, if you can figure this out, I'll give you the gold chain and the purple robe and make you the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered him, verse 17, and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now verses 18 through 23 Daniel gives Belshazzar a bit of a history lesson and reminds him of the arrogance that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar, earlier in the chapter 3, is the king who said, he built up that gold statue and said, whenever you hear the music play, you'll bow to the statue and you'll worship me, and if you don't, you're going to be killed with fire. That's the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a very haughty and arrogant man, and he was humbled in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is just kind of flaunting his stuff. He's standing on the roof of the palace, and he's looking around, and he says these words, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He was full of himself. He was, he was very proud of Babylon, and he did. We know, we know in history that Nebuchadnezzar brought Babylon to its ultimate place of, of power and of glory and of influence. And he had this, he was very haughty about it. And Daniel had warned him, you're going to be humbled. He had interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar and said, you're going to be humbled. The Lord is going to cause you to lose your mind. And right after Nebuchadnezzar says these words, for the glory of my majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox for seven periods of time, that's seven years, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven years. And Daniel comes in, and, he, and he's speaking to Belshazzar, and he says, remember that. Do you remember that? You do remember that. I know that you remember that. He says, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Verse 22, Belshazzar, you were there. You saw your grandfather rise to power, get a big head about it, defy God, and then he fell. He lost Babylon. And now Belshazzar is doing the same thing. He is in power, and he's taking the gold and the silver vessels from the temple, and he's toasting to false gods because he's arrogant he is haughty. And Daniel says, you have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. You have praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze and iron and wood and stone. And these do not hear or see or know. But the God in whom is, whose hand is your very breath, the God who holds your very breath, you cocky, arrogant son of a gun, the God who holds your breath, you have not honored and so here's the hand. And then so from his presence, verse 24, a hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mine, mine, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. 
Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. In Paris, or a Parsian, depending on the translation you have, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar went ahead and he either isn't listening or he's not getting it. But he believes Daniel. He gives him, he gives him the stuff, the gold chain and the, and the purple robe. In verse 30, but that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the story of a great kingdom being lost. Nebuchadnezzar lost the kingdom. Belshazzar was killed and Babylon was taken down. Nebuchadnezzar just lost his place, but in verse 5, the kingdom itself is, is destroyed and it's overpowered. This is a story of a kingdom that falls. And there's a few things that I want to read to you because I, th- I think that this is not as far f- removed from us as it may seem on the surface. This was quite a long time ago. It was a completely different part of the world and a completely different culture. And the way that it happened is, is very unique. But I think that there's a lot here for us to pay attention to. Babylon was a great kingdom, but it was surrounded always by danger and by active threat. It was surrounded by the same danger that we're all surrounded by. Every kingdom is surrounded by the the risk or the danger of flood, famine, drought, earthquake, tornado, whatever. Every kingdom is, is, is at risk to the unknown of nature's tumultuous mood changes, but they also were surrounded by an active threat. The Medo-Persians were around them. They were surrounding them, and they meant, they meant harm. The Medo-Persians were coming around Babylon with the intent of hurting Babylon, taking Babylon over and killing people in the process. And this is, this is true for us today. There's, there's people that have their idea of, of their little kingdom, and that, that can just be your your home with your family. It can be America, greatest nation ever come under God's green earth. If you're one of those guys, it's cool. Or it can just be your neighborhood. It could be your culture. It could, we, we all have a kingdom. We have an idea of a kingdom. And we take a certain amount of pride in our kingdoms. And our kingdoms are fickle and our kingdoms can fall. I, being born and raised in Portland, have, especially in the last 10 years since so many Portlanders have left and other people have come in, the six of us left that were born and raised here have a lot of pride in that, being from Portland. I have multiple hoodies that say Portland native on the back, just as like a, what, you know? I'm from here, this is my home. I'm proud of it. There's a certain amount of pride that I take in that. So I wanna read some some of these stats you because this is, this is the world that we live in. This is the country where we are. This is the city in which we reside. According to NPR, there's been a 52% rise in murders in Portland alone in 2020. A 52% rise in murders. That's pretty unbelievable. The U.S. as a whole has seen a 30% increase in murders from 2019 to 2021. 2020 was a horrific year. The 30% increase in murders alone is the largest jump in one year's time that has ever been recorded in the American history. There's been, there's been higher murder rates in the past, but to jump 30% in one year is the, is the highest recorded so far. There was 4,901 more murders in 2020 than there were in 2019 for a total of 21,570 murders in the U.S. in 2020, which is about 60 murders a day every day for 365 days. 
we're surrounded by threat, even if it's not an opposing army. My wife and I were going home from a, uh, a dinner with some friends, and I watched a guy, I don't need the whole story, but I watched a guy back up his vehicle and pointed a nine millimeter into a residential neighborhood and emptied all 10 rounds, just blindly shooting at this other car. And we pulled over and, to see if anybody had gotten shot and to help, and no, nobody did, but that was just on Fremont Street just a few months ago. It's getting a little bit dangerous out there. And that's just, that's just crime, I mean, that's just, that's just murder. This, uh, there's a, a magazine called the New York Intelligencer, this guy named David Wallace Wells wrote this article. This is, this, listen to this. It's called The Uninhabitable Earth, Famine, Economic, Economic Collapse, A Sun That Cooks Us, What Climate Change Could Wreak Sooner Than You Think. It is, I promise, worse than you think. If your anxiety about global warming is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you are barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible even within the lifetime of a teenager today. Sick. Sick. The New Yorker goes on to, to point out that the four costliest hurricanes recorded in all of American history, the top four, have occurred since 2005. And four is not very many, but what's crazy is that if you just go back one year, 12 of the 13 costliest hurricanes that have hit American soil have been recorded since 2004, 12 of the 13 costliest. And scientists will, will tell you that the, this global warming effect is not producing more hurricanes, it's just making them a little bit more or a lot more gnarly. The four that hit in 05, Harvey, Irma, Sandy, and Katrina were devastating. Irma was so bad, C category five hurricane is the top that we have. Irma was so bad and did so much destruction that scientists are actually thinking about making a Category 6 just to put her in it because she broke all of, the, all of the records. We're not safe here. No matter how safe we think we are, we're not safe. And you hear Josh say quite often that we as Christians are supposed to be the most pessimistic because we know the world's not going to really get any better because we've read Matthew 24, but also that it's, we're supposed to be the most optimistic because we have a hope of that's beyond the walls of this world. We have a hope beyond the physical. We have an eternal spiritual hope. And we're trying to get people saved out of this world. While, of course, we do our best to take care of this world. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I, I, I live here. I just am trying to give you the numbers. This is, what we're, this is what we're looking at. And maybe think about investing real estate someplace else. <laughs> you know? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not... Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Kingdoms fall. Our kingdom is surrounded by danger and it's surrounded by threat. And maybe some of that threat, maybe some of that danger has touched your life. I mean, good grief, 2020 alone, the, co the whole COVID thing. And now everybody's freaked out about COVID or they're freaked out about the efficacy of the, of the vaccine and there's a war there. Crime in the streets, the subduction. I remember in 2015, that's what everybody was talking about, was that every, every, everything west of the I-5 corridor from Alaska to Mexico was going to fall eight feet into the ocean. And we're still waiting for that to happen. I mean, there's any number of things. Pick your poison. 
This is, a, this is a kingdom. We're here. Portland's a kingdom. America's a kingdom. Your neighborhood's a kingdom. Your own personal little safety net is a kingdom. But don't get too comfortable. Remember that this is not our home. It's falling apart all of around us. And it was falling apart for Belshazzar. It was actively falling apart right before his very eyes. And look at what he's doing. So the text today, these things are happening around Belshazzar. And what is he doing? And the historians and the scholars that look at this read the first four verses of this text, and they're a little bit perplexed. Because Belshazzar knew that the Medo-Persians were there. They took over that very night in verse 30. And we're, we were told in history that seven to ten days prior of this event, the Babylonians had been defeated by the Medo-Persians in a battle about 50 miles from the city. So the Persians were coming and Belshazzar knew it, and yet here he is. He's not just partying. Listen to the details here. He's partying hard. A thousand of his lords, a thousand. I mean, every key player in the kingdom was there in that one room. That's not a good idea, especially if someone's throwing stones. And he brought his wives and his concubines, another Another weird thing in Babylonian culture, you don't usually mix those two ladies together, you know? They've got beef with one another. But his wives and his concubines, and he goes and he, and he calls the gold and the silver from the temple that, that they had ransacked in Jerusalem. Bring those things in, bring in those utensils and let us drink from them. And the historians pause and they ask, what is happening here? What is Belshazzar doing? He is being surrounded by the Medo-Persians and he's getting drunk and he's in an orgy fest with all of his dudes, all of the great minds in one place at one time and he, they're in mixed company. What is this guy doing? And I've heard this, I've heard this taught a couple of different ways and the thing is that it, either, either way it doesn't really matter. It comes, you come to the same conclusion. He's, he's either saying, you can't touch this. This is Babylon, get real. Let's throw it in their face and just have a giant party. This is how serious we take you, Persians. We're just going to get drunk and love on one another. Or he's just like, you know what? The ship is sinking. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And he's, he's hiding and he's drinking himself into a stupor because he can't handle the reality of what's happening. And he's praising the gods. You know, he's, he's, he's worshiping the, his gods of gold and of silver and of wood and of stone. Either way... Whether he's cocky or he's, he realizes that he's defeated, it looks the same. And this is a great study of, of humanity and our, 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 our need to feel significant and our fear of impending death. Tim Keller, in, in preaching on this chapter, in Daniel chapter 5, uh, points out, rightly so, I love these kind of guys, Ernest Becker, he was a... He was an anthropologist from Massachusetts, and he wrote a book in the 70s called The Denial of Death. And in that, he points out that human civilization, all of human civilization, is one big attempt at what he calls an immortality project. We want to be connected to something that's going to last. We want to be connected to something that is going to endure. Because we don't like the idea deep down that we are temporary, that we're insignificant, that we're going to die. We hate that. And we do a lot of things to fight against it. And in this, in this book, uh, Ernest Becker, the, the Denial of Death, he points out three main ways. And, and Ernest Becker didn't have any beef with Belshazzar. But it's fascinating because the three main ways that Ernest Becker points out humans deal with their mortality is through, he calls it the romantic, the creative, or the religious. And Belshazzar here is engaged in all three at the same time. The romantic, 
I mean, this is the, this is the, I mean, if you grew up watching Disney movies, this is the oldest one in our book, kids of the 90s, Beauty and the Beast and all these different kids, and they, get to, and they, they, sail, they sail off into the sunset and happily ever after. This is the, I need, I need you to complete me, the romance, the need to be with somebody. I'm okay as long as I have you. I'm validated as long as I have your attention, your affection, your love, your sex. As long as we're together, it's okay. I am legitimate because I am loved. And this tears us apart. Whenever we become 35, 40 and are still single, it hurts. It hurts, I know. I talk to many people who are really broken up about this. And Belshazzar is buttressing himself with the lust of the flesh. I am okay, my, my existence here on earth is okay so long as I am with you. Our, our movies and our music are replete with this. It's, it's changing a little bit in the last five years. There's a lot more autonomy and independence coming out in the, in the mass culture. But this is, this is classic. I'm okay as long as I'm just not alone. Somebody come and be with me. This is the romantic. We validate our existence with the, with the company and with the romance of another. And the second is creative. We stand out. How do we deal with ourselves? We, well, we have to do something that elevates us above the rest. We create a Babylon. Or we go into the storehouse and we say, bring in the gold and the silver vessels. Bring in, bring in the spoils of war. Look at what we have done. Look at what we have accomplished. Number one New York Times bestseller. Broadway, A-list celebrity, the person that is in front, the person that's being listened to, the person who is the top of their field, the PhDs, the whatever else. I need to achieve this thing. I'm okay as long as I get this thing done. As long as my life will count, the effort will be worth it. Every day waking up nine to five and just going through the, just the, just the sludge, you know? Traffic and upset stomachs and headaches and frustrations and kids crying in the back and spouses fighting with one it's all worth it if I could just get this thing if I could just make this dream come true then it would be worth it then I would have meaning then I would have value if I could just make this thing work bring in the spoils of war look at what we've done look at what we've conquered bring in those gold vessels and let's drink from them and toast the gods and that's the third that Becker points out is the religious we, we surround ourselves with religious activity and think that we're going to be okay because we have, we've merited salvation. We've earned it. We've achieved it. We perform some duty that makes the gods, whoever the gods are, smile upon us and welcome us into their kingdoms. The romantic and the creative and the religious and all three of them are right here. Ernest Becker says this, he says, this is the terror. People are not able to face their own death. He says, this is, this is the terror, to have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression, and yet with all of this, yet to die. In the face of annihilation, we sulk or we bulk. We hide or we say, you can't touch this. We build kingdoms and we hide behind the walls. 
This was a fascinating, you know, I, I like guys like Ernest Becker and Leo Tolstoy and Albert Camus and Frederick Nietzsche and, and uh, Carl Jung and all these, all these dudes, but I, I heard this young woman say this, this, and I thought, hmm, cool. This is maybe one of the most, well, definitely one of the most famous, successful, and influential people in our culture today. And I heard her say this, and, and I thought, you know what, that's... That's a religion. That's a false religion right there, but I, but I get it. This is from Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish said this. She's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. I really try not to listen to her, but she's pretty good. <laughs> she says, the fact that I'm going to die one day, and then everyone around me is going to die, and no one will remember me after a certain point makes me feel so good. Because I could do the best thing in the world, and nobody would even remember it, and then I'll die and it won't matter, and everyone else around me will die and it won't matter, or I could do the worst thing ever, and I'll die and it won't matter, and everyone else around me will die and it won't matter. And I read those words and I get it, but I hear behind those words a need to hide from reality. It's all going to be okay because ultimately it's not going to mean anything, but I mean, we can see the holes in her logic. They're, they're clear as day. And I don't know with what sincerity she was sharing this quote, but I mean, if, if it all means nothing and we're not going anywhere and we came from nothing, then where do you even get your idea, where your categories of the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world? I mean, justice goes out the window right there. It's all gonna, it doesn't matter. The Holocaust, doesn't matter. All of the injustices, all the murders, all the rapes that have ever happened in all of history, doesn't matter because one day we're gonna be dead, the sun's gonna blow up and it won't matter. I get it, but that's weak. That's weak. Talk about being insignificant. It just won't matter because we're all going to die. Billy, if you're out there, come talk to me. I'd love to get a cup of coffee with you. Talk about this. So, we're going to fall apart. Belshazzar goes to the bottle. He starts partying with the girls and he brings in all of his buddies. And then the hammer comes down. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw it as he wrote, and his color was changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Now, I asked, before I came up here, I asked Kristen if I should share this, and she said, you should, and so I'm going to. The ESV is trying to clean this up a little bit too much. The ESV says that his limbs gave way. <laughs> and that his knees knocked together. The old faithful King Jimmy says that the, the loins, that the joints of his loins were loosened and that his knees smote together, which means literally that he pooped his pants and collapsed. This is how scared he was. It's not pretty, but this is the reality of the situation. Belshazzar soiled himself and fell on the ground when he saw this hand show up. And he does what we do, right? He does what we do. Tim Keller pointed this out. I love this. His, his life all of a sudden came to a standstill. Whether it be the Medo-Persians or whether, it, whether he just be like, you know what, come and get me. I don't even care. You're not going to make it. Try your best. You will fail to take me down, Medo-Persians. Now suddenly he's laying in a mess of humiliation because his life, however cocky he may have been 10 minutes before, now his life has just been rocked. And what does he do? He does what we all, he calls the professionals. He calls the psychiatrists, he calls the scientists, he calls the, the counselors and the PhDs, 
and he looks for help. He says, bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers, and they are unable to help him with this at all. And this is fascinating. So then Daniel comes in. And notice what Daniel does. Daniel comes in and, and, and Belshazzar makes all of his promises. I'll give you the gold chain. I'll give you the fancy duds and the bling. And I'll give you the position. And Daniel said, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. What Daniel's doing here isn't some sense of false modesty. I mean, Daniel's been in this position before where a king who could have him killed is saying, help me. And Daniel comes at him with a little bit of vinegar. He comes in kind of sour. He says, you know, I don't want your money. I don't need that. You can keep it. Daniel at this point is an old man. He's just not impressed. But the other thing is that he's, he's not giving Nebuchadnezzar anything that he produced. Daniel's not coming to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, here is the result of my wisdom or of my reflection or of my thoughts. He's coming to him with God's word. And so he's not accepting any reward because he's not bringing anything that is original to him. The same thing happened in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue with the different layers of metal that it's made out of. Some of you may know that, know that story. But Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel for an interpretation and and Daniel says this to him. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals. There is a God who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. There is a God who makes known. You call in your enchanters, your psychologists, your scientists, and whoever else. You can call in me, and I'm just going to give you God's word. I'm not going to give you anybody else's word. So I will not accept your your reward, because this is God's word, not mine. And today, you know, people say, people say, oh, God's word, the Bible, this, outdated, unimportant, stupid, backwoods, contradictory. We can't trust the Bible. It was written by a bunch of goat herders 3,000 years ago. Are you kidding me? The thing is, the Bible has been, has been scrutinized and scrutinized and scrutinized. And as I was studying this, I came across uh, something that I found fascinating. Daniel chapter 5 has actually been used to discount the Bible. For many, many, many years, teachers would point to Daniel chapter 5 and say, here's why we cannot trust the Bible. Here's proof. Belshazzar wasn't the king of Babylon when it fell. We know that's true. We know in history that Belshazzar, the nights that the Medo-Persians came and destroyed the place, Belshazzar was not king. A guy named Nabonidus was king. See, you can't trust the Bible. Who's Belshazzar? We don't know. So throw your Bible away. <laughs> well, in the words of one of my favorite poets and philosophers, Kendrick Lamar, that's boo-boo. Straight boo-boo. In 18... In 1854, a guy by the name of J.G. Taylor found what's called the Nabonidus Cylinder. He found four of them, identical to one another. And inscribed on that cylinder are these words. As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a life long of days. And as for my son... Belshazzar, my oldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart, and may he not commit any cultic mistake, and he be sated with a life full of plentitude. 
four of those were found in 1854. And if that's not enough, on top of that, another document was found called the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is somewhere, boom. This states that Nabonidus took a trip. He left the kingdom for 10 years, and there's some debate back and forth. Did he leave to go on a religious excursion, or did he leave to go fight battles? And it's not really important. It doesn't matter. But here on the Nabonidus Chronicle, it stated that Nabonidus left Belshazzar in charge when he left. And so whenever Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall and is like, oh, snap, someone come and shine the light on my eyes, and I'll give you the third place in the kingdom, that was the highest place that was possible. Nabonidus was still king of Babylon. But Belshazzar was a regent leader. He was a regent king. He was holding the place down while his dad was away. And so the third place was the, was the only other place that was available. I'll make Daniel right under me. History catches up with the Bible, y'all. The Bible has been laughed at and mocked and scoffed. And every time something like this has happened, there's been 25,000 archaeological digs that have been that have been motivated or prompted by what is in the Bible, and every one of them has affirmed what is in the Bible. And then ones like this that show up late are a real treat for those of us that like to go, history catches up with the Bible, not the other way around. Daniel comes and he brings the word of God, the word of God that can be trusted. And what the word of God tells us, friends, is that this kingdom is going down. And we don't need to fight with one another. We're not insignificant. We're not an accident. We didn't come from an evolutionary oops and then evolve over the course of trillions of years. We're taught in scripture, we're taught in the word of God that we are deliberately and wonderfully made by a God who cares for us, a God who is a God of love and of benevolence and a God of community. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important, that God is three distinct persons in one Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, existing for all of eternity in community and in love, revolving around and partying with one another in pure joy. And we were created to be a part of that family. We're not an accident. We were created to be in that community. And it was our sin that exed us out of it. It was our sin that God in his righteousness could not dwell with and he had to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. We have been in sin ever since. But God was not content to leave us there and so he sent his son to pay the punishment of that sin. And Jesus came and he lived in this kingdom. He lived on earth with all of its mess and all of its murder and all of its hurricanes and all of its accidents and all of its hatred and crime and he was victimized by it, and he went to the cross without having ever sinned in word, thought, or deed. And that perfect righteousness, that above reproach record, is given to us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to appease the gods. It's given to us. We can't earn it. It's a gift. We're not insignificant. We're not an accident. And we don't need to kill each other to climb some hierarchy. We don't need to contribute to the I hate you because you got the vaccine. Well, I hate you because you're not going to get the vaccine. And I hate you because you voted for Biden. Or I hate you because you voted for Trump. We, stop. This is not our home. We take care of this world. We do. We do our best to take care of this world. We, we vote. We don't throw our cigarette butts in the, in the, in the ditch on the side of the road. And we don't, we don't just throw lath and plaster, asbestos, into the yards of friends and family and pollute and litter and dump motor oil into the, into the, into the open rivers. We don't do that. 
But this world is going to crumble. We take care of it as much as we can while we're here. But friends, we have to have our flag actually in another land. The kingdom of God is coming. And this kingdom is falling apart. Daniel comes to Belshazzar and he gives him the word of God. And he says to him, here is the writing on the wall. What is the writing on the wall? Mine, mine, tekel, parson. To say it succinctly, these are the words that are signifying the coming of another kingdom. Another kingdom is coming, Belshazzar. Your days are up. Another kingdom is going to come upon you. Another kingdom is going to overpower you. And for Belshazzar, that was really bad news. It meant his death. It meant the, it meant the, the fall of Babylon. It meant the rule of Cyrus. But for us... It's great news. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is casting out demons, and he's getting a lot of flack for it. And the the Pharisees are saying, well, it's by the power of the devil that he casts out devils. And Jesus rebukes them and says that 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 logic is about as as logical as trying to pick up a two-by-four you're standing on top of, homeboy. That's not the way that that works. But Jesus says this in, in verse 20 of chapter 11 in Luke. He says, but if it is by the finger of God, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus stepped out of his kingdom. He humbled himself and he entered our world. He entered our kingdom. And he showed us what the true kingdom is like. He healed disease, he wiped away tears, he forgave sins, he raised people from the dead. Everywhere Jesus went, all of the dead bodies that he touched, all of the disease that he touched, he was never adversely affected by those things, he made those things better. His presence here was a sign of the kingdom that's coming. And then he died for our sins, And he rose again for our justification. And he offers us his perfect righteousness as a free gift of salvation. When we put our faith in him as Lord and as king of the universe. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit went out. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, entered the human heart. And we become born again. We take on a new nature. We take on a new spirit. We become, a, we come, become alive and awake to the things of God. And the things of earth grow strangely dim. And this is what Jesus says about us in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. He says, you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the writing on the wall, if you will, of a kingdom that is coming. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Tim Keller put it like this. I love this. I'm going to steal it from him, but I'll give him cred. Tim Keller, speaking about this, said, Christians, if you're the writing on the wall, if you are the indication of a kingdom that is to come, are you legible? And that is a good question. Because we can get just as sucked up into the world's affairs as anybody else. And this COVID vaccine thing is doing it. I got told, I got told by somebody that I met at Dorf Hope 10 years ago to get effed. Because we didn't see eye to eye 
on one particular issue. And I wasn't even stating a case, I just asked him a question. And that was his response. Are you legible? Pray for that guy. I'm not gonna give you his name, but just say that guy Ian knows, he needs prayer. We all need prayer. But we have to stop killing each other. Are we legible? We have a hope that is beyond the walls of this world. And yes, reason and logic and wisdom apply to our lives as well. I'm not talking about being belligerent. I'm just talking about going to a different resource. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And do people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do they see our good deeds? Jesus said that the world will know you are my disciples when they see the love that you have for one another. Even if you don't agree politically. Even if you don't agree about the vaccine and everything else. If you don't agree about global warming and why, there's, why murder is so high. Well, it's because people have guns. Well, no, it's because of defund the police. Listen, it's all a hot mess, I know. But this is our resource to, to engage in those complexities without killing one another. The world is always gonna be a mess. Friends, this is not our kingdom. Let's do what we can. But the gospel is really what matters. The gospel saves. Do not be afraid of the one who can kill your body and then has no power over you, Jesus says. He says, be afraid of the one who after he has killed you can cast your soul into hell. We can be wise, but we don't have to be paralyzed with fear. This is not our home, and we know that it's going down. Whether it's the subduction or hurricane, adverse reaction to the vaccine, COVID itself, cancer, as I took my dad out, cancer. In the height of a COVID pandemic, cancer took him out. You just never know, friends. Are you legible? Does the world look at us and see us being different? Are, are we legible writing on the wall? Because we are the sign of a kingdom that is coming. And that's a beautiful responsibility. And it's intimidating. And we're going to fail. And we're going to falter. And friends, I need prayer too. I'm just as prone to anybody as getting all fired up about this and name calling and just like nursing a grudge in my mind because somebody said something to me that I didn't like. Friends, this is, this is part of our struggle. But look at, look at Jesus. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do while they were driving the iron nails into his skin. This is God's love. This is God's grace. And that grace and that love can motivate us to be a sign to the world that this isn't all there is, that there is a beautiful Savior and there is a beautiful kingdom that we are all going to. We have the hope of heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is how good Jesus is. He gives us a promise like this. Amen? So this is cool. I brought a King James up here because the King Jimmy always gets it right. I just don't read it because I barely graduated from high school, so it's tough. This is fascinating. So history tells us Babylon, the impenetrable city, how did Cyrus do it? We're told in history that the walls of Babylon were 250 feet high on the inner perimeter. They were so wide that you could race four horse-drawn chariots across the top of them. On the outside of that wall was a moat 
that the Babylonians had ingeniously, they had taken the Euphrates River and they had bifurcated it and it went around the walls of the city to create a moat that was 20 to 30 feet deep. And then on the other side of that moat was another wall. And the Euphrates River ran from north to south right through the city. 20 feet down underneath the surface of the water, there were archways with iron bars. The water would flow through. It was the lifeblood of the city. The water went around the city, and it came underneath the walls because of those arches that were barred off. There was no way to get in. Nobody could climb 30 feet down and get to those bars. So what did Cyrus do? How'd they do it? History tells us that Cyrus was a pretty clever guy. And two miles north of the city of Babylon, not an easy feat, the Persians diverted the water. The Euphrates River was going straight towards Babylon, and they diverted it off to the side, and the water going into Babylon receded, and it began to dry up. And those bars 20 or 30 feet below the surface became visible and accessible, and Cyrus cut through them. They cut through the first wall, they walked underneath of it, they made it to the second wall, they cut the bars, they walked underneath of it, and they just entered right into the city without even being noticed. And they went right into this banquet hall and they killed everyone. And they took over the city. And that's how Cyrus did it. And that's, that's cool, that's informative, that's history, but check this out. 200 years before this event, Isaiah writes these words. Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 27 and then going just into the first few verses of, of chapter 45. That saith to the deep, be dry. I will dry up thy rivers. He saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. It was Cyrus who let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will, go, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and I will cut and sunder the bars of iron. Are you kidding me? That sends goosebumps down my spine. 200 years before it took place, Isaiah's writing about a guy named Cyrus who's going to cut some bars for two gates and loose the loins of kings. The Bible is God's word. It is reliable. It is inerrant. It is trustworthy. It is God-inspired. Go to the word of God, friends. Meet Jesus here. Read about his life. And pray hard because this is not our kingdom. And so in a very real sense, Galatians 5.17, we are at war. But let us fight fair, okay? Let us stop hammering on one another because Jesus is that good. We have an inheritance waiting for us. This is not our final home, amen?